Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10, that's podcast10, to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Now, to the top analysis of today's crypto markets. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington. Today, I'm joined by Stephen Goldfeder, co-founder and CEO of Offchain Labs, the company that's developing Arbitrum to talk, of course, about all things Arbitrum. Stephen, welcome to Real Vision. Thank you. Great to be here today. Well, it's a pleasure to have you with us. So much to talk about. We're going to dive into all of that in just a second, but let's take a look at some price action here. We are in the middle of a bull run, ladies and gentlemen. Bitcoin right now trading at 30,425, trailing 24 hours. Well, it's down about half a percent, but trailing seven days, Bitcoin up over 15%. Same story over with Ethereum trading right now at $1,889, trailing 24 hours. It's basically flat, trailing seven days. Ethereum is up about 10%. Lots to talk about, but I want to also touch on Arbitrum right now trading on my screen at a buck 16. Stephen, welcome to Real Vision. So much to talk about here. Uh, let's get folks started with a little bit of general background. Uh, we're going to dive into the weeds in just a second. But for those who are relatively new to this space, what is Arbitrum? And give us a thumbnail sketch of the Ethereum scalability issues, challenges, and opportunities for L2s. So Arbitrum is a layer two scaling platform for Ethereum. There's a lot of big words there, but basically what it means is it is the way to scale Ethereum. It is the way to bring retail throughput and the capacity that really uh, mainstream adoption needs to Ethereum. And this is not something that is a fringe belief in the Ethereum community. It's not something that only layer two builders believe. It's really something that the entire community believes. You know, a few years ago already, Vitalik put out uh, Vitalik Buterin put out a blog post talking about Ethereum's roll-up-centric roadmap. And Arbitrum, as others are scaling technologies, are roll-ups. And the idea is that everyone's on board, both Ethereum Layer 1 and Ethereum Layer 2 folks, that the way to scale Ethereum is to get actual users and retail and mass adoption onto Layer 2s. And the real awesome thing we do is we take the security and decentralization from Ethereum and we bring that to layer twos. So together with uh, the scalability of layer twos, you have a decentralized, secure platform that can scale to the demand that Ethereum has. So for folks who are relatively new to the space, I just want to give them a sense of context of the scale of Arbitrum, because I think it's important for people to understand. First, I want to take a look at a chart from DeFi Llama. Uh, this is a table that you're about to see showing uh, that right now Arbitrum is the fourth largest protocol by total value lock. This isn't just L2, folks. This is everything in terms of TVL on DeFi Llama. Second, I want to take a look at a chart, uh, or rather I should say a table uh, by L2 Beat. 
This tracks the, the size and scale of L2s. As you can see on this table, Arbitrum currently number one by TVL. Again, it's the same number, about six billion. These are significant scale that we're looking at here. Uh, Stephen, talk a little bit uh, about the uh, adoption of Arbitrum uh, and why, in your view, this protocol has been so successful. So Arbitrum is actually bringing real scale to users today, and that's something which, you know, early on, there were a lot of different protocols that were building towards a lofty and grand vision, and Arbitrum was chief among them. But Arbitrum was uh, actually able to deliver that and still able to deliver that today. Arbitrum, among uh, optimistic layer two protocols, is the most advanced. It has the security mechanism, also known as fraud proofs, fully built out and functioning in the system today. And that's half the story. So that, that the technology is just very advanced and mature and secure. And the other half of the story, though, is the is the ecosystem itself. And it's a bit of a circular question because I guess the question is, how did the ecosystem get here? And I'm answering it with, well, there's a strong ecosystem. But but that's actually how crypto kind of works, where um, a lot of what crypto does is enables really good seamless interactions between different protocols. And you can just spin up and build and build a great um, experience that taps into other protocols. And one thing about the Arbitrum community, and this goes back to the earliest days of the Arbitrum launch, what was the, what, we, what we called an open, a fair launch, an open launch. The idea was there was no priority access to people. Everyone got access to Arbitrum on day one, and that was August 31st, 2021, when it went to mainnet. All, all users entered at the same point, and developers had a few months to build before that. And from that very point till today, it's a very inclusive ecosystem, very open and collaborative. And I think that um, you know that's a very big part of it. So it's the um, technical merits, and the uh, Arbitrum is by far the most advanced technical, um, you know, achi achieving uh, layer two that exists today, bringing scale to users, but also a very broad and welcoming and diverse ecosystem that allows and encourages people to come in and build really awesome experiences. We should say when we're talking about the token, the token came later. You mentioned March of, tw of 2021, excuse me, 2021 more generally. I believe it's March of this year that the Arbitrum token dropped. Talk a little bit about the airdrop, the challenges that were had there, uh, and the current state of the token. Yeah, so just to put it in context, so the chain went live August of 2021 to users. And as you mentioned, the decentralization, which is when the Arbitrum DAO was formed and governance and the governance token was a way to, you know, uh, disseminate the governance power of the chain that came in March of this year, just a few months ago. And, you know, for the way from my perspective, this was about technical readiness. You know, people like to ask the question of why and when did you launch a token then? It was really about this is necessary to fully decentralize the protocol. And as soon as that was technically ready, um, that was the right time to do it. So basically in August of 21, the chain went live. One year later, in August 22, there was the chain's biggest upgrade to date called Arbitrum Nitro, which massively increased capacity on the chain. So it allowed more throughput, more capacity, more transactions, and also at the same time, lowered costs. A few months after that, validation was open to more parties. And today, um, there are many institutional validators in Arbitrum, including names that are familiar probably to many, like Consensus, Google Cloud, um, Quicknode and, and many others, Ethereum Foundation are, are all validating the network. And then the next logical step was to decentralize. So what does decentralized means? It means give the upgradability of the chain, give the power to make decisions for the chain's future, both in terms of um, the resource allocation, as well as in terms of the actual, what technology is running on the chain. There is no centralized actor today and Arbitrum has self-executing governance. So whereas some chains, their governance model has a disconnect between the votes and then there are some people with keys that can actually turn the keys and are supposed to listen to the vote. 
Arbitrum is unique among layer twos of governance today that is self-executing governance. So the vote actually happens. If the vote token holders vote, hey, let's do this technical upgrade, that is the on-chain vote is what actually um, affects that. So the token is uh, obviously very important to the decentralization is what gives the gives the power to the hands of the community. And um, you know, the Arbitrum Foundation, Arbitrum DAO are, are the uh, main players when it comes to the token and the current running, uh, you know, current bodies that actually run the chain, whereas Offchain Labs was a launch partner there and um, really built a lot of the early technology um, that got us there and together with uh, the Arbitrum Foundation, uh, together with Nansen uh, to help a lot with um, actually designing the airdrop. There are a bunch of launch partners that got us to, to that point in March. Yeah, and there were some challenges there. Talk about the current state. Yeah, so it's interesting you bring up. So um, there were definitely some uh, challenges early on uh, once the DAO launched. And uh, I'll just, you know, disclaimer that I'm really talking from a community member standpoint because I, um, at Offchain Labs, we don't have a privileged position um, via the chain or the token at all. Um, but there were definitely some challenges in terms of some communication, I think, um, um, errors that, that happened in terms of the certain allocations uh, of where the token went. In particular, um, the Arbitrum DAO is unique in the sense that uh, I mentioned before that it actually has a self-executing governance. One thing that it has, it has uh, about 3.5 billion tokens in the DAO treasury. That's number one. And it has also it has a significant amount of ETH because all the fees that come into the chain so the, some of them are paid out on layer one, that's the cost of the security, but the, uh, the net fees actually go to the DAO treasury. And there's, you know, just in the few months that since the DAOs existed, there's uh, millions and millions of dollars of ETH sitting in the DAO treasury as well, all controlled, you know, um, by, by the DAO directly. Um, there is also a, a, a foundation. When this is a foundation, as you could think of it as the legs and the arms uh, that represent the DAO, because sometimes, you know, if you imagine if you want to get, uh, if you want to have a deal like a business deal with a uh, Fortune 500 companies, they're probably not going to want to talk to a DAO. They're going to want to sign all sorts of confidentiality agreements and NDAs, etc. And they'll need um, some, often a body to actually represent that can represent on behalf, but also have uh, um, you know a in flesh counterparty and. The, there was uh, definitely a miscommunication in some of the earlier docs um, around how the foundation was funded exactly, um, but that's actually been fully resolved today. And then recently there was uh, these two AIPs, which are arbitrary improvement pr proposals, which approve the funding of the foundation, actually also include transparency requirements, included vesting. And I personally think that where it ended up was a lot better than, initi than it initially was because now the foundation has um, a really strong mandate and really strong uh, controls, but also the community has transparency and will get information. And the coolest thing, though, is uh, you know this was definitely uh, I think a hard time for a lot of people, or, or you know it was it was uh, it was a lot going on. It wasn't the you know the easiest time for the DAO in its early infancy. But one thing that it set was a precedent. Anyone looking at the DAO and the foundation and any other players involved can just look to the very first proposal of the chain that actually failed. That was the initial funding proposal, uh, the ratification, they say, I, sh I should say, of the foundation's funding, and that proposal failed. And anyone looking to where does the power run in the Arbitrum DAO Foundation can see immediately it's the DAO, it's not uh, you know, the service providers, it's not the investors that, that built it, uh, it's not me, it's not Offchain Labs, because remember, again, the first proposal failed, and the DAO had its way and got the, and, uh, and got the transparency that it asked for. So I think looking back, it's actually everything emerged a lot, a lot stronger. Um, and there's a lot of good precedent for where the power lies in this ecosystem. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, and these are some of the challenges and, and frankly, just the uh, sort of things getting hashed out in a truly decentralized world. Uh, these are some of the challenges we have uh, more generally. Talking of which, obviously, a lot of competition in the space. You mentioned optimistic roll-ups earlier. Let's talk a little bit about some of the mechanisms uh, for running L2s. The main uh, sort of two fundamental principles are zero knowledge proofs uh, and optimistic roll-ups. Uh, Arbitrum, of course, uses optimistic roll-ups. Talk a little bit about the way that Arbitrum handles the scaling. So the thing that rollups all have in common is they put data on Ethereum, just the transaction data, and then they take the execution of that data off chain. So when you think of a transaction, you can think of it in two ways. And there on the one hand, it's just a blob of data, zeros and ones that don't really necessarily mean anything to you looking at them. But then if you look deeper, those actually are instructions that say, hey, add these numbers, store this value, do this computation. And so what rollups do is they put the basic data on Ethereum, but the execution of that data they take off chain and have somebody else do. Well, we get to who those are, often called validators. And then they go back and report the result back to Ethereum. And the cool thing is, is they increase the capacity because all that computation they do off chain, Ethereum doesn't itself verify. Instead, Ethereum just verifies when they come back and say, hey, this is what happened. Now, in order to scale, though, what you want is the amount of data we're reporting back, the amount of computation we're doing is much more than Ethereum itself can verify. But we also want Ethereum to give the security here. So Ethereum needs to put its stamp of approval and say, hey, that thing that you did, I actually approve. I know that you got to the correct result. So you have this problem, and that's what rollups try to do. They try to take the computation off chain, but still convince Ethereum that things are correct. So Ethereum can use its security mechanisms to secure the rollup. And there are two approaches to do this, but they unify in, in one word, which is proving. They prove to Ethereum, say, hey, we'll prove to you that this is the correct result. And by the way, I'm going to prove it to you in a way that's faster for you to verify than doing it directly. So you're doing all this work that Ethereum miners couldn't possibly verify in the capacity that Ethereum has, yet via these magical proofs, Ethereum is actually able to verify and say, hey, I can't actually run that directly because I don't have enough capacity, but I'm confident that that, roll -up is, that that result is correct. And there are two different ways that these proofs happen, as you mentioned. One is called zero-knowledge proofs, also often called validity proofs. And what that means is when you come back to Ethereum and say, this is the result, I'll give you a validity proof right here and now. I'll prove to you that this is the correct result. And these use zero knowledge proofs, which are mathematical proofs, which are really, really cool and have this property that it's easier to verify the proof than to do the work itself. Right. It's harder to actually create the proof. Now, the prover has a lot of work to do, but the verifier, so Ethereum can easily verify this proof, even though he can't do all that work. The second approach is called optimistic rollups, and they use something called a fraud proof technology. And they're optimistic, as its name suggests. How are they optimistic? They come to Ethereum and say, hey, here's the result we did off chain. But by the way, I'm not giving you any proof at all. And optimistically, they hope that it will get accepted and no one will challenge it. But if someone comes along and challenges them, there's a challenge window of now it's seven days typically. Um, there's a challenge window where anyone can come along and challenge that, and then they'll engage the proving mechanism in the challenge case. So they're optimistic. They don't do the validity proof. They don't do the work up front. Optimistically, they do much less work. 
But if someone at the challenger comes and says, hey, I disagree with that, uh, there's a very efficient proving process via these fraud proofs that um, will resolve that and get to who is, uh, you know, who is telling the truth and what is the correct state of the rollup. Yeah, so computer science like economics is all about trade-offs. Uh, it all comes back to, in some ways, Vitalik's trilemma between scalability, security, and decentralization. How do you think about those trade-offs between zero-knowledge proofs more generally and optimistic roll-offs? Absolutely. So if instantiated correctly, both of them will inherit the security and decentralization of Ethereum. So it really comes down to the third, and, and that's how the layer two paradigm is designed, which is the security and decentralization come from layer one, Okay, but how do we scale? Because you still need to scale, even if your value, say security and decentralization come first, users still need to use this for it to be valuable. So the, the scalability comes from layer two. And they really, so they differ, I would say, in the scalability, but there are, you can you can go a little bit deeper there. So I would say the planes that I, what I would use to compare ZK rollups and optimistic rollups are one is cost. So mm. it turns out that the cost of proving ZK rollups is actually significantly higher than the cost of proving or validating optimistic rollups because the ZK rollups, we mentioned that the verification of these proofs is very is, is relatively cheap, but the proving cost is actually much, much higher. And that's a cost you don't actually see on chain, right? On chain, the proof just shows up, but often you'll have to have someone in the background with exotic hardware uh, in some cases, or you know, a lot of a lot of hardware and a lot of work, and something often takes many, many hours to actually generate one of these proofs. So there's a cost, uh, um, there's a cost aspect where optimistic rollups outperform. And you can look at actually, the nice thing is, you know, this has always been theoretical, but now there actually are some ZK rollups that are live and you can look and the cost of transactions um, are, are higher on ZK rollups generally. And um, often some of this cost of the proving is, is even subsidized and not even showing up there. But then there's a second one, which is compatibility. It turns out that optimistic rollup design allows you to use uh, Ethereum's geth stack directly. So actually in the early days of Arbitrum, Arbitrum had a custom node and in that Nitro upgrade that I mentioned before, um, it went to you. It started using Geth directly and doing its fraud proofs a little bit differently. Um, and what that means is you have deep, deep, deep compatibility with with Ethereum. Uh, you know, not only these on the surface, but also under the hood. It's actually running the same software on a very deep level. It has this like whole proving mechanism attached to it that Ethereum doesn't have but it's fully compatible from a software perspective, from an integration perspective. And that's something which, you know, we've seen in ZK rollups um, don't have today because the, the difference is the model of computation. Optimistic rollups run basically on the hardware of your machine. Um, you know, you, you run Geth directly, you run the software directly. ZK rollups need to be translated into the language that these proofs run in. And these are called circuits or arithmetic circuits. And uh, often, um, you know, to give you a very concrete example, in an optimistic rollup, if you want to add two numbers A and B, you will add those two numbers to your machine just like it would generally. In a ZK rollup, um, you would have to do often um, thousands or tens of thousands of, of different curve operations or operations in these circuits, these cryptographic operations, uh, to translate to a different computation model. So the point is that the ZK proofs are very efficient. Um, but they, you know, when you're, they're, they're relatively efficient to verify, but to generate these proofs, they're expensive. And to actually translate to the language that these proofs have, you have uh, incompatibilities. And you'll see this uh, often the ZK rollups have you know, a number of features or pre-compiles that they don't support today. And that's another one. The third one is maturity. You know, the technical maturity, Arbitrum has been uh, running these fraud proofs on mainnet since its launch, actually since the launch of its testnet, uh, you know, uh, nearly uh, three years ago now, whereas, um, ZK rollups are first coming to market now, and they're they're doing great things, but they're just uh, on these three planes, uh, you know, cost compatibility and maturity. They're you know uh, pretty pretty well behind.
I should say uh, you have a PhD from Princeton University in computer science. Notwithstanding that, you've done an amazing job of explaining this at a level uh, that business folks who don't have backgrounds like me uh, in computer science can really understand. And it's, I think it's very helpful for people to understand what's actually happening beneath the surface. One of the questions uh, we hear at Real Vision, I think someone internally just brought this up uh, a couple of weeks ago, is this question of, hey, look, you know, there are all these great things that are happening on the Ethereum network right now. Uh, costs are dropping in terms of gas fees. Uh, scalability is increasing. Why do we need L2s if Ethereum is beginning to build out some of this functionality uh, themselves? They're expanding the core functionality of the L1. Talk a little bit about the case for L2s going forward. So a few things there. One, Ethereum is actually, in a few cases, expanding the capacity and the feature set of L1 to support L2s. So one uh, example of this is something called EIP4844, which is a proposal. Remember I said that what rollups do, they put all the data on Ethereum. It turns out actually that's the most expensive part of certainly Arbitrum. Like, so the, if, you, if a transaction costs 10 cents, the majority of that 10 cents is actually just going to store the data in Ethereum. So Ethereum is doing work, uh, the Ethereum community, um, and, and you know we at Option Labs are part of this. So besides for Arbitrum, we also develop Prism, uh, which is the leading um, consensus client for Ethereum. So we're uh, involved in both layers of the stack. But one thing that we're that we're working on is as a community is this uh, data, you know, cheaper data on Ethereum. But that's very much targeted at layer two, is because it goes back to Vitalik's vision. It's not just my. It's not the L2s versus layer one. It's not like. Right. The layer twos and Ethereum are are battling on this. Everyone in the Ethereum community is actually on the same page that, hey, we're going to move everything to layer two. So you have the layer one development also gearing itself towards making things even cheaper for layer twos. And I think the other thing in a more like uh, ecosystem, um, you know, broader view of things is, you know, things are probably, you know, suppressed today or more suppressed than uh, they were at some points and maybe a year or two ago, if you look at different markets like NFTs and the like. And um, you know, if you believe that, um, or if one believes that the market's never going to, uh, the demand will not increase from here, or sort of like, you know, things are just going to stay stagnant, then you might say, well, we're doing okay today. But, you know, we believe very strongly, and we're seeing uh, increased signs of adoption from, you know, from more, you know, uh, Ethereum and crypto native projects, but also from big enterprises that we're very, very early on in a multi-year or multi-decade adoption cycle and um you know we believe the demand is that it can keep and keep and keep going and well we you know actually i'll take take back to one of the early experiences of us at off chain labs when we were uh raising capital in 2018 in our initial seed round you have this people like asking this question and saying do we really need scaling today and i remember someone one investor saying i have also 10 problems and like scaling is like you know number 10 on that list if, if at best right and the problem is that these come very fast right the prices get high and people are like where are you guys we need you right right now we need the scaling right now if you don't put the time the effort uh to build when uh, things are more suppressed um you know you won't be ready when things uh begin to uh, pick up even more again we're already seeing very very significant adoption of layer twos are um like arbitrum are reducing user costs today but i think it's going to only become more and more and more important important over time and when costs are low on Ethereum layer two, that's the best time to move your app and bridge your funds to, to uh, you know, when, when the costs are low on Ethereum, it's the best time to actually use the bridges and move everything to layer two. So when the costs of Ethereum start to rise, you're already in that protected zone where the costs are going to stay lower. Hey everyone, we're gonna take another quick break and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back to the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Hey, let's talk a little bit about adoption. Let's talk about total value locked uh, transactions per second and some other ways of measuring uh, the adoption of 
uh, layer two or layer one for that matter. Yeah, so some great metrics that you that you had before, um, both on the total value locked uh, of the chain, as well as um, another one that, that DeFi Llama that I like to look at is the 24 hour volume, which is DEX volume. And Arbitrum today is consistently number two or number three generally. So it's Ethereum is usually number one. Um, and then Arbitrum and BSC sort of duke out the number two and three spot. I, I didn't look at it today, so I don't know where it is, but that's generally the uh, what the trend is. And that's again, a strong sign, a sign of adoption and usage uh, in DeFi. And uh, another really good metric that I like um, is people like to compare the usage of Arbitrum to the usage of Ethereum. And there are two different ways to do this. So there's one is which transactions per second comparison. And uh, Arbitrum and Ethereum are, you know, are uh, relatively similar. Arbitrum has gone over Ethereum in certain day, you know, you know, in certain certain days. Ethereum has sometimes uh, is re recently been doing a bit more than Arbitrum. Uh, that's one metric. Uh, this is a transaction where they're pretty close, neck and neck. But the other metric, actually, which is even cooler, is not transactions per second, is gas per second, and that gives you deep, deep insight into what people are actually doing in these transactions. Because not all transactions are created equally. Some transactions could send, you know, Alice can send Bob uh, value, and that's a relatively simple transaction. Or there are transactions that do really complex trades on, uh, on options or futures protocol like GMX on, on Arbitrum, you know, much more um, expensive transactions, and they're doing a lot more interesting things. And it turns out that despite the fact that the transactions per second in Arbitrum and Ethereum are relatively similar, when it goes to gas per second, Arbitrum is many times uh, Ethereum uh, is much, much higher than Ethereum, I should say, um, consistently and has been for months, like uh, very, very consistently. And what that means is, is not only are users using it for a similar number of transactions, but Arbitrum is enabling you to do much, much more complicated things. It gives you an eye into the developer's mindset. You might be a developer on Ethereum and you're just priced out from doing something that's just expensive, right? No one's going to use your app if the transactions are expensive, but in Arbitrum, developers have the tools to actually do more in their transactions. They're doing more and more complex things and building richer and richer experiences for users. And I'll leave with one last metric um, on this point, which is that I like a lot, um, is Ethereum Bridge, ETH Bridge. So we mentioned TVL, but if you actually just look at the ETH Bridge, so the certain, just the Ether, just that, that asset, um, Arbitrum has about 1.1 million ETH, which is um, uh, over $2 billion. I, I, I uh, do the math from your intro segment to know the exact number, but you know a lot of ETH bridge on the, on the, on the chain. And the interesting thing is if you, if you take the ETH bridge in Arbitrum and compare it to all of its competitors combined, so take like ZK Sync and Optimism and Starknet and Polygon uh, you know, and Avalanche, like literally just like put everyone in there, there, you know, all together, there's about six or 700 million ETH in all those ecosystem combined, where Arbitrum has, you know, well, well more than those combined. And why does that matter? Um, I think a lot of the, you know, what we're talking about is the core ETH users and core ETH community and where they're going to go and where they're bridging and where they're storing their value. I think it's a very strong, you know, strong sign of adoption that um, the majority of that by far is, is happening uh, on Arbitrum 1 today. Stephen, we only have a few minutes left, but I was hoping you could give us a peek into the future in terms of the Arbitrum roadmap, but also more generally uh, about your, the direction that you see for the Ethereum ecosystem more broadly. Absolutely. So um, in the Arbitrum roadmap, I'll, I'll give a disclaimer, which say, you know, now that the DAO exists and controls upgradability, I can go ahead and create whatever software I want but I actually have no path to get that onto the chain other than going through the DAO and ask them to vote, which means um, I imagine, you know, I can tell you some things that 
I'm working on an off-chain lab, which I hope will go on chain, but I imagine that there's others in the community that are working on other technical upgrades and you know there will be a lively discussion around certain one of these. But I'll tell you some of the things that off-chain labs is, is working on. Uh, one is a, is a project uh, called Arbitrum Stylus, and this is the ability to code not only on, on an Arbitrum Nitro chain, so on the chain powered by the Arbitrum Nitro tech stack, to code not only in Solidity or the EVM languages. We mentioned before that Arbitrum has like the most compatible possible with the EVM, but I view that not as a ceiling, as a floor. That's the starting point. But then we say, what more can we do? Particularly as we're seeing adoption from you know, other developer teams that aren't uh, Ethereum native. So you're looking at enterprises and they have both humans, people that know other languages, but also code, cryptographic libraries and all the like that's written in other languages. I think it's going to be massively game changing from a developer <laughs> adoption standpoint to have chains that can run in other languages. And uh, there's a project which is uh, very, very into far into its adoption. The code will be ready for production this year to add Rust, C and C++, so other developer, very common, uh, typical you know, coding languages, programming languages onto the Arbitrum chains for a seamless experience. So a Rust contract can talk to a Solidity contract, or you as a developer can write part of your contract in Solidity, use a, a cryptographic library in Rust or C. I think it's going to be very uh, important. And the other interesting development uh, across the ecosystem, but I'll talk about Arbitrum's part, is Arbitrum Orbit, which is Although we've talk, been talking about the adoption in, on the Arbitrum public chains, but these are application adoptions. So people are building applications on public chain. We're seeing a growing tra trend where people don't only want to have their own application, they want to have their own chains. Now, I don't think that makes sense for everyone because some are well served by being resident with other apps. Like we mentioned before, that's one of the great things of, of DeFi and uh, the, the synchronous interaction. But there are applications uh, that want their own priority lane. They want their own chain. And the Arbitrum Orbit program uh, you know, is a really good path for them to do that. And just last week, we at Offchain Labs put out a toolkit that literally allows you to launch your own chain uh, that settles to one of the Arbitrum public chains in like two minutes. You parameterize yourself and you build your own blockchain. Um, so really uh, cool developments there. I think we're going to see a trend. Like, I don't think it's going to be quite as much as um, all the interest that we see today, uh, but I think there will be some of these that, that sustain and build really great chain ecosystems. Uh, and Ethereum as a whole, um, I think we're all rowing in the same direction. It may seem very competitive from the outside, but we're all on the same page that uh, moving over to layer two and moving over to the layer twos, I should say, is going to be really critical for scaling to mainstream and mass adoption. And I think we're all as an ecosystem working on joint efforts, not to say there is no competition, but working on joint efforts to make that experience better for users because ultimately right. being more inclusive is, is, is the best that we can do. So. That's so you've been talking uh, about inclusivity. I just got a question uh, from one of our regular Real Vision viewers. Ralph on the Real Vision website uh, wants to know which private equity investors are currently invested in Arbitrum and what kind of governance controls do they have in place, if any? So this is really a question about a point we were talking about earlier, which is decentralization. Yeah, so um, you know, off-chain labs uh, raised capital. Um, when, you know, when when it, when when off-chain labs raised capital, and that's all public. Uh, investors include Lightspeed and Polychain and Pantera. Um, you know, they um, also part was was you know public as part of the launch documents was the um, amount of tokens that went to you know um, um, insiders. Insiders include like service providers or development teams as well as investors. So all that information breakdown is is public. I don't remember the exact uh, numbers, but uh, what I do remember is uh, the aggregate, aggregate, which is uh, all in all. 
the majority of the chain was owned by the community and the, and the DAO. So 56% uh, of the token supply of the Arbitrum token uh, went to the community and 44% went to the combined um, insiders, both past and present, uh, meaning some of those are reserved for, say, future, but that's sort of the, the cap there. But there are also a lot of controls involved there. So one thing I'll mention is those early DAO votes, you know, uh, we talked about, no investor voted in the, voted in those. Uh, those were all basically Arbitrum community members who got tokens for the airdrop. Those are the only people um, that voted there. We at Opting Labs have a policy. We don't allow uh, our employees, you know, even though employees do have do have or may have or in any case do have tokens, um, we don't allow employees to vote. And that includes founders like myself. I don't vote. Um, you know, hmm. uh, employees are allowed to do um, delegate delegations to parties they don't control or don't have you know uh, any influence to um, and they have to fill out like a complex a detailed rubric um, in order to do that and and, and establish that there is no uh, you know establish the the, the, the relationship um, yeah. but um, you know we don't vote uh, investors um, again uh, in those early votes investors definitely did not vote um, I don't know if any investors voted they, they, they would they would follow their own policy um, but that's why I think it's important though, to realize that the Arbitrum DAO controls the majority um, of the token supply and it's really in the DAO's hand and the token holders hands of where and how that gets distributed over time. So I think implicit in Ralph's question is uh, this question of whether uh, other than uh, the voting rights assigned to the token supply, is there any other mechanism that insiders have uh, to have influence in terms of the direction of the uh, of the protocol? Yeah, great question. So the answer is uh, absolutely not. And this is unique and I think surprised people. So I, right. like I said, I can go to the DAO and go ahead and propose it to do an upgrade, but there's nothing that I can do to to actually push code on chain or divorce. And for example, I'll give you an example where I imagine we'll, we'll you know, I have thoughts. One, one big topic is um, MEV extraction or how, you know, how um, you monetize the sequencer or reorder transactions. I have thoughts around the ethics there, but others in the community have different thoughts. And there's absolutely no reason that, you know, for me to think that my voice will be just but my voice. There are really strong voices in the community that disagree with me and disagree with others at Offchain Labs. And we know these will have these these will be lively conversations that happen on the forum. So um, the Arbitrum, the only one control, just just to be fully complete, is there is something called the Security Council uh, in the Arbitrum uh, DAO. And the Security Council is basically, uh, to give you an example, say that there is like a critical uh, vulnerability discovered in the software. Now, the software has obviously been vetted and audited, et cetera, et cetera, but you can never get to 0%. Uh, um, you know, it's always something that's possible. Um, the last thing you'd want to do is go put that up to a month-long DAO vote and disclose that to the public. So there needs to, for very specific uh, cases, be an ability to do something quickly. Um, and that's what's called the Security Council. And the Security Council, following you know Vitalik's road, uh, rubric, basically for this, uh, it's a it's a nine out of twelve uh, Security Council. That means that there are twelve members. In order to do something, uh, you'd have to have nine of them uh, sign off on that action. But the cool thing is, uh, so first of all, the Security Council has not done any action to date. Just just to note that, and anytime it did, it would be fully public on chain, and it would have to, and it would also by agreement have to publish a report. But who are the members of that council to the question? These are broad ecosystem members. I'm not on that council. Um, Off-chain labs does have three seats on the council, but again, it's three out of 12. And that's not enough to push something through because you need nine. It's not even enough to veto, right? Because the other nine you know, can do whatever they want without Off-chain labs. So Off-chain labs really, and 
But the last thing I'll say, those are elected every six months. So I know uh, in about two months from now, two of the off-chain lab seats are up for vote and the community can, can vote them out. So um, off-chain labs uh, or the others, you know, even the Arbitrum Foundation, um, you know, the, the, the path to get something on-chain would, you know, it doesn't, you know, would not be via an upgrade uh, pushed by any party, that, any central, you know, no one has that power. It has to go through basically through through now vote and Steven, um, unfortunately we are out of time I, I would love to dive into more of these details you're just going to have to come back and join us again so that we can continue this conversation <laughs> uh, but in 30 seconds or so final thoughts key takeaways that you'd like to leave our audience with from this conversation absolutely um i think there's a really really fascinating thing happening in the ethereum space now we're seeing this multi-year scaling vision actually play out and people are building things on layer twos and one thing that i get a lot is how can i get involved you can get involved as a developer as a builder as a user there are so many ways to get involved and be part of this uh you know really i think early history in the making here and you know go ahead and build your own arbitrum chain build an application on an arbitrum chain get involved in the ecosystem and um i think it's really a uh, you know wonderful and inclusive place Stephen, great conversation. I hope you'll come back and join us again soon. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us. And thank you for watching, everyone. Have a great afternoon. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.